Welcome to Cookie the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast for foodie book lovers, where food is the story. And this month it's sponsored by City Books, Brighton & Ho's largest and liveliest independent bookshop. This week, by the magic of Zoom, I'm in Manhattan, in the home of former New York Times journalist and author of Hungary, Jeff Gordonier, to retrace the footsteps of what must be one of the best food journalist gigs ever. A rock and roll road trip with Renee Redzepi, the greatest chef in the world. In the week that Red Zeppi reopens the doors at Noma, his Copenhagen restaurant, which has been voted the best restaurant in the world no less than four times, Jeff has a good guess of what this pioneer of the new Nordic lockable movement and master of reinvention is going to do with the latest incarnation of Noma, an outdoor-only $15 burger and wine bar. But first, I asked him about the moment he was offered that gig to go to Mexico with Renee Red Zeppi. It was 2014, and I was at the New York Times, and I got an email from Rene Redzepi's people, uh, people who were associated with one of his cookbooks. Um, they wanted to meet up. Um, and the weird thing is I was inclined to say no. I was just in a bad place in my life, and I wanted to go home that day. Uh, it, it, for a variety of reasons, um, I was just in a dark place, and I and I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm going to meet with this guy, and he's going to lecture me about the new Nordic movement, and his manifesto, and his his vision of the future of food, and I'm just not in the mood. But you know, we do our due diligence as journalists, and um, being a food writer at the New York Times means you have certain responsibilities. So I thought, you know what? Let's just I'll have coffee. It can't hurt. Let's just put some perspective for people who may not know who Rene Redzepi was at that time. He was officially the best chef in the world. Noma had already won four times. That's right. His restaurant in Copenhagen was considered the best restaurant in the world by certain measures, indisputably the most influential restaurant of the world, of our time. Okay, so he's Madonna. He's Stevie Wonder. He's David Bowie. Like, he's... A god at that moment. And, and you know, bizarrely, I'm just like, I, I don't know. I'm not in the mood to talk. But I meet this guy, and I found him absolutely transfixing. He was just mesmerizing. Um, there's, a, there's a touch of the cult leader about him, <laughs> in the sense that he sort of pulls you into his world. And essentially, to make a long story short, he said, you and I are going to go to Mexico. We're going to travel through Mexico. It's my favorite place in the world. And we're just going to feast and we're going to, you know, explore life. And and I, I was like, okay, wait, we just met? What? What's? Why is that happening? You know, and it turned out um, I was able to find an editor at the New York Times. I wanted their magazines, actually, called T, uh, Whitney Vargas, whom I owe a lot of uh, credit to. Very grateful to her and to Deborah Needleman, her boss. Who said go? Just go. We'll we'll pay for it. So I ended up traveling through the Yucatan Peninsula, Oaxaca, Mexico City, uh, Merida with the greatest chef in the world. You know, little did I know that would change my life. I mean, my life was transformed uh, by that trip. I ended up zagging when I thought I was going to zig, and I ended up eventually joining the circus. I essentially quit my job at the New York Times and started traveling all over the place with Rene and his cohort, 
his his merry pranksters, as it were. So you know, I, I went back to Mexico many times with him. I went to Australia. I went fishing above the Arctic Circle in Norway. Um, I made pizza with him in New York City, which is actually not even a scene in the book. We we went to Tennessee together. There's all sorts of stuff that didn't appear in the book, but um, because I wanted the book to be kind of a runaway train, fast, yeah. a fast, furious read. So, um, but yeah, I got to know him pretty well, and I, you know, I'm still in contact with him all the time. We were texting just moments ago, actually, um, because Noma is in a state of transition right now. Yeah, and tell so. me, you, you, so we're going to change this, we're going to schedule this so that it will come out in the week that Noma uh-huh. leads the world in opening its restaurant ahead of everyone else. Again. Yeah, I'm honored. I mean, it's you know, that's, there's something about Rene with timing. The guy's like a genius with timing, and he's a genius with anticipating the moment and interpreting the moment and reacting accordingly. I mean, we're in the middle of this pandemic. I am in my daughter's bedroom. She's asleep behind me, right? That's her. That's Margot. <laughs> she doesn't want to get up. So uh, she's 17. She's going to college in the fall. And she's just, she said, do the podcast. I'll sleep through it. And this is, you know, we're in a, a bizarre time in human history. Uh, and um, so, yeah, actually, Renee was telling me a few weeks ago, he said, I think I'm going to change the restaurant and turn it essentially into a wine bar with crudite and burgers, cheeseburgers. Now, if you know this guy, you know he's always been very uh, protective of the aura of Noma, the ethos of Noma. That it, it's a, you know, it is an experimental fine dining restaurant. It's not a place that's going to serve burgers and chicken sandwiches and stuff. But he's reading the moment. He's reading the tea leaves, and he's saying this is the time to to shift. Um, actually, as you probably noticed, the last three lines in hungry my book are it can change it can change it can change Mm. um the book ends with renee saying that about the new noma he has built Um, i i remember it vividly i was standing in the kitchen with renee redzepi and pete wells the restaurant critic of the new york times and renee was showing us around the new building and telling us that it was built so that it could always adjust into new tasks. Like if they decide the restaurant goes this way, they can just change it. The whole grounds of the place are sort of engineered in that way. And we're seeing the fruits of that right now. I mean, he has decided to pivot again and change the place into a casual spot. Um, and what will that look like? You know him so well now. And obviously, as a, you know, as a food journalist, you really understand the whole idea of a movement what can he do with a burger that would be transforming? Good question. Um, the burger itself, from what I gather, is fairly traditional. It's it's almost just like a traditional California-style burger. That's where I'm from with like a kind of a mayo sauce, a lot of pickles, um, potato bun. I think it's more about the symbolism of it. I think what he realizes right now is that people like you and me, all of us, we're craving community. We want to just hang out. We want to relax. We want to feel taken care of. And what we're missing about, I don't know about you, what I'm missing about restaurants isn't necessarily the food. It's the vibe. It's the music, the lighting, the sense of being out and about, seeing friends. You know, one of the last restaurants I went to in in New York City before this pandemic hit was uh, called Veronica. It's in this beautiful photography museum, new photography museum in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. And as my wife and I were leaving, you know, we saw 
Oh, there's Yolanda. There's Simon Kim. Um, oh, hey, there's David Littman. Like we saw friends of ours in the bar waiting to get tables. And it felt so good. Mm-hmm. It's a very New York thing. Like, hey, mm-hmm. what's up? Hug. You know, it just it's community. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's in Copenhagen or, or Los Angeles or New York or Tokyo, it's that sense of community. And mm-hmm. um, I think that Renee senses we're all longing for that. And wants to make sure that Noma delivers it. So it's not so much about the burger per se as it is about gathering. Because, you know, this is a time in history that will never happen again. We'd, you know, you could argue that we... Yeah, but I mean, actually, at this moment, you know, I'm talking about kind of the end of lockdown in sight. Certainly, you know, if Noma is opening, if restaurants are opening, this, this is a moment. And... You could argue that, you know, we've been building and building and building our sort of fetishization of food. You know, food has just gone so far away from the the idea of what food should be. Yeah. That it kind of popped, you know, and then we were all in lockdown. We had to, we were all deprived of it. And we had to sort of take a moment to think about what we were missing. What actually do we want? And as you say, yeah, it's community. It's everything that food represents. It's a little right. bit like the emperor's new clothes. And we're all standing there like, oh my God, <laughs> the king is in the altogether. You know, <laughs> do you think that he'll play with that idea? Because that's kind of what he does, doesn't he? It's a brilliant question. It, you know, actually, in a way, the book Hungry begins with a virus. Weirdly enough, because... It begins just after he's come out of this period when Noma was beset by its worst tragedy. Um, 50, 60 people who dined at Noma were infected with um, a norovirus that later was traced to a bad batch of mussels. But at the time was this huge mystery. The best restaurant in the world essentially at that point was seen as having poisoned some of its guests by accident bad look you know like that's not a good situation and so noma dropped from the number one spot on that 50 best list and uh renee just went into a tailspin i mean he he really suffered and and the whole team did i mean because it was humiliating and you know they lost business he knew he had to build back so the book sort of begins with him trying to build noma back to the top spot trying to build back respect around the world. I mean, there's always a lot of respect for the restaurant. But knowing he had to, again, shift and pivot. It's The whole book is really about change. And knowing in my own life, actually, as you see, I'm a character in it, and my own life changed. And Rene kept changing what Noma was. He did one in Japan, one in Australia, one in Mexico. He built a new one. Um, he kept changing the menu based on what he felt was the moment. And so, yes, to answer, that's a long-winded answer, but I think that probably he knows right now what people are craving is not, you know, experimental tasting menus. People are not like, you know what I really want right now in the midst of this pandemic is to sit for six hours and eat <laughs> bizarre chemical things. You know, like, that's, it's not really what they do. But it's sometimes how these restaurants are perceived. Mm. Actually, Noma is all about nature. It's almost kind of like nature boy cooking. You know, it's all foraged and fermented and super fresh. It's not like those science experiments. Sometimes people interpret it that way. Nevertheless, it is, um, it is a commitment. 
It's it's going to it's trailblazing when you eat there, and I've eaten there seven times. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of like a, a deadhead following the Grateful Dead all over the place. <laughs> like wherever Noma goes, I go. It's killing me. I can't go eat their burger right now. Actually, um, so I know he'll adjust. I know he'll adjust. See, that's that's one reason he stayed on top. You know, and the best restaurants. It's very interesting to see what they're doing. I live about 15 minutes away from another place considered one of the best restaurants in the world, which is Blue Hill at Stone Barns, where the chef is Dan Barber. Uh, another one in the top echelon. It's right down the street. Um, I do not eat eat there all the time because I can't afford it. Um, but um, this is where the Obamas such, eat. Let's be honest. This is it's, this. it's 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 absolutely gorgeous. It's on this. This, this Rockefeller-owned farm, this beautiful landscape. I mean, the food is, the cooking is exquisite. I'm going there today to pick up boxes. They have dinner boxes you can pick up. Oh God, they have a garde-manger box. They have a vegetable box. They have the best, listen, like the best, highest-end vegetables you'll ever find, all from their farm and other farms. You can get a like a poultry box, a flower flower box actually sold out. I wanted to get it for my wife, but it was sold out. So I'm going to drive over there this afternoon, and they have a whole protocol. You know, you wear everybody's wearing masks and gloves. You pick up the box, you text that you're there. Um, and I got to tell you, it's very inspiring. I think Dan Barber, Dave Barber, their wives, everybody who's part of the team. Dave Barber's his brother, and Dave Barber's wife does all the design for the mm-hmm. boxes. Lorene Barber. And I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. Like, beautiful, they've got beautiful labels telling you what each item is. Um, and, like, they, the first thing that my wife and I got from them for 50 bucks was this whole soup you put together. You heat up the broth and then you put all these amazing vegetables and charcuterie and herbs in it and stuff mm-hmm. and eggs. And then they also, it, it had breakfast for the next day. For 50 bucks, it's actually a pretty good deal because it could feed like three or four people. Yeah. Um, so I'm really impressed by the creativity of that, you know, seeing people like Renee Redzepi and Dan Barber and Dominique Crenn, uh, the first female chef in America to get three Michelin stars yeah. in San Francisco, Absolutely. a friend of mine, amazing woman. I mean, she's doing these incredible, uh, Crenn kits, you know, like Crenn cooking kits. Yeah. Um, it's it's a little bit like you know when the tough when things get tough the tough get going or yeah. whatever that saying is. I mean, you see the creative people getting even more creative to stay alive. Yeah, and that's uh, happening a lot in the UK as well. People I'm sure. are, are really thinking about what it what it is about their offering. What what is what are they oh, yeah. as a restaurant? Yeah, what do they that's do? That's right. But let's keep that central question about what will Renee do with that burger as we kind of go through the book. Take us, first of all, to Noma. Uh, you're going to read a little bit from page 68. That first sea urchin dish that you had on your, the very first time you went to Noma. And just do give that fantastic backstory of poor old Grant Gold. You're <laughs> <laughs> the oh. saddest man in the world. <laughs> Who was your date? I feel bad for Grant. I mean, that's his real name. And he's a really creative guy, really brilliant, nice guy. I mean, I he thought just it was a- slept through his first, his only opportunity to eat at Noma. People cannot just get to Noma. Grant Gold, he was your plus one, and he slept yes, that's through. A, yeah, it was a tragedy. It, but it's also a comedy, as you see. I mean, it, it's really the main comic set piece of this book. And 
Many, many people tell me it's their favorite part of the book. <laughs> um, it's painful, though. Uh, I will just tell you, to make everybody feel better, um, that it says something about Rene Redzepi that he invited Grant Gold back with his girlfriend later. Did he? So Grant actually oh. did eat at Noma later. Um, in the paperback... No, in the paperback, we're going to have a footnote with that because I don't think I was aware of that. Okay. And uh, Grant emailed me and told me that. So we adjusted that because um, it's telling, not just that it's good information, but it tells you something about Noma. He's, he's um, a dude. He's a nice guy. Yeah, and then it's about hospitality, you know. It's, I mean, the, what I want you to read is really about how extraordinary... Uh, a sea urchin can be this sums up exactly what Noma is all about and therefore what Rene Redzepi is all about so I go to Noma for the first time after traveling through Mexico with Rene um, and I'm alone because Grant hasn't shown up and uh, <laughs> and everything is good really good I mean amazing until I get to maybe the fourth dish and that's when my mind was blown so I'll read that I'm comparing dishes to music here. For me, the tune I couldn't resist. My hey-ya, my crazy in love, my shattered. Was the one listed on the menu as sea urchin and hazelnuts. The dish itself was almost as simple as the language used to describe it. Fresh, tangerine-hued, tongue-like lobes of uni roe lay curled up in a bowl of pale, milky liquid with beige slivers on top. The slivers were slices of raw hazelnut. The liquid had been extracted from pressed hazelnuts. A few crystals of sea salt rested here and there like flavor-enhancing pop rocks. That, at least to the naked eye, was the sum of it. Sea urchin with a counterpoint of nuts. And then with each bite from a small wooden spoon, my eyelids lowered in quiet euphoria. This dish had the deep, primal deliciousness of cultured butter spread on top of saltines. But the butter in this case was oceanic and the crackers were earthy. I tasted just what it was, and yet I tasted the microtones, the flavors in between the visible and obvious, as if tiny bridges of taste had been built between them. Now, you're a guy who eats out professionally. You've eaten at all the best places yeah. in the world, and this blew your mind. Why was it so different from everything else that you'd ever eaten before? Here's the secret, as I say in the next paragraph, um, it's not just about cooking, it's about shopping. So a lot of us have had sea urchin in sushi restaurants, maybe. Um, sometimes it's delicious, sometimes it's inferior, frankly. Um, and that's because it's shipped, you know, around the world and it's in these little trays. What they did at Noma is they had a guy named Roddy Sloan, whom you meet later in Hungary. I became so obsessed with this dish that I went up to Norway to meet the guy um, and fish with him. So, Roddy Sloan is actually from Scotland, but he lives up in Norway, and he goes, like, under, into the cold water by himself, and pulls up these sea urchins, puts them on the boat, they're as fresh as can be, and, and you know, from incredibly pure waters, puts them on a boat, the boat goes to a seaplane, 
the seaplane takes them to Noma. Like it flies to Noma then. And so <laughs> Ronnie gets them in the morning, in the afternoon or something, they're at Noma. And as a result, they're still alive. They're super fresh. And when this dish was served, I mean, this was 2014. They no longer serve this dish. But um, the chefs would just crack open the urchins and scoop them into the bowl and then pour the hazelnut milk on top and stuff like right then. So really what you're getting is something so, so fresh. And then paired with these raw hazelnuts, which is also actually a very fresh like kind of a, a, a taste of immediacy. Um, you know, I, listen, chefs are always telling me it comes down to the ingredients, and it, I get so bored with that. That's like one of those quotes you don't even write down because you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but they're right. I mean, the fact is it's true. They say it because it's true. It's true of Dan Barber. It's true of Dominique Crenn. All the people we're talking about. So this was a dish where they knew they had the best salt, the best urchins, the best seed, uh, hazelnuts, and it would just... It would just sing. Um, I, I would just say quickly that a lot of people think that what's at Noma is all these really fancy, weird things. And sometimes that is true. Some things are just crazy curveballs, really weird. Delicious usually, but like uh, odd. But many things are not. Like this dish was not really that weird. It was very beautiful and simple, almost like something you'd see in Japan. You know, like one time I was there and they just came up to the table with this giant platter of fresh langoustines from the Faroe Islands um, that, again, had just been alive. They cracked them open, barbecued them, and brushed them with this garum butter, so butter with, like, a fermented meat sauce, very funky. And they, and they didn't bring any utensils. They just said, eat them, go, just buttery seafood. I mean, that's, to me, heaven, okay? And it wasn't, like, fancy cooking. That's yeah. my point. But there's there's a certain sort of um, curiosity and a real, real love of ingredients, isn't yes. there? It's what you describe throughout the book, and it is like, uh, you know, it's, you're off-roading, you're, you're touring the world with this guy who is so, so, so curious yes. about food. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? That's what you taste. Yeah, that's exactly it. He, I've never seen somebody get so excited about a mango. Like, this guy, I mean, I've traveled through countries and marketplaces and he would enter a marketplace and find an herb or a fruit that was native to that place and become almost it was like he had taken drugs it was almost like a psychedelic experience he would just be like eating the mango in contemplation and yeah. you know exhilarated it's 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 uh you know you have to have that you have to have that real love for the ingredients to cook at this level He's not phoning it in. Exactly. But he does gather these amazing people to him. Yes. And your second food moment is about Malcolm Livingston, yes. one of his guys. And, you know, what I really kind of picked up on this is this is a, there's a bit of a zeitgeist at the moment. There's a bit of a moment for these. They're all young. They're all cool. They're all tattooed guys. Very fit. Pretty good looking. They're a type, aren't they? And they are as fascinated as he is about food. But there's a bit of a science nerd about it as well. And it's it's something that actually is about now. It hasn't really been before. I mean, you know, we had Blumenthal and all his experimental yeah. and the alchemy and all that kind of yeah. stuff. That's not what this is. There's a competitive, There's a, they're almost like surfers. Yeah, that's they're, good. They're people who learn to, to ride a wave. They, and they do it beautifully and elegantly and they are 
constantly fascinated by the science that makes them stand up on a board, you know, to extend that metaphor. Tell us about Malcolm Livingston. Yeah, Malcolm Livingston um, is an African-American guy from the Bronx. He grew up in the Bronx, very, very removed from any idea of fine dining. Uh, He... You know, he. I, I've been to the neighborhoods he grew up in, and you know, there's mostly fast food around there. Um, but he had a gift. He has a gift. His palate. You know, he just has an incredible consciousness when it comes to food. And um, his. You know, I, I often say when people ask me about the Noma team, um, it's really not just Rene Redzepi, as you know from reading this book. It's it's also David Zilber and the fermentation room. Uh, it's Rosio Sanchez when she was doing pastry. Um, they're very special people and they, they, they have incredible talents of their own and incredible insights. And so I often say that I think Renee is looking for people who have something to prove and people who have something to say. It's not just that they can cook. It's like they have a perspective on food and they have a little bit even of a chip on their shoulder. Like they want to prove to the world that, the, you know, and, and I think Malcolm, although he's an incredibly sweet dude, has that. He really, he wants to, to show the world that he has this gift. So, you know, he, he found his way to per se Thomas Keller's restaurant. He was the pastry chef uh, at uh, WD50, Wiley Dufresne's very, very trailblazing restaurant in the Lower East Side. Let me tell you something. You do not get that job without being something of a genius, you know. He was preceded by, like, Alex Stupak and Rocio Sanchez. And then he ended up being the pastry chef at Noma. Um, When I wrote about him for the New York Times, uh, that story wound up on the front page of the paper, not the food section, but the actual front page. Because a kid from the Bronx had become the pastry chef at the best restaurant in the world. It's it's just a great, triumphant story. Um, Yeah. You know... It's like so many things, like artists, uh, musicians, uh, athletes, uh, writers. People sometimes have a gift, and they they find ways to um, use it that that sort of tap into their background. Yeah, this is your second food moment. Read us a, a little section of it uh, from page eighty-seven. Malcolm is getting ready to move to Copenhagen to become the new pastry chef at Noma. And he's prepared for whatever thought experiment Red Zeppi might throw his way. If he said make a dessert out of fish bones, that might be a little hard. You're not going to make an ice cream out of it. If he says do something with onion, onions are so sweet. Apples and onion. Apples and shallots. Apples and shallots and beer. I could go on for days with just flavors. All of that came from working at WD-50. I've got to give credit to Wiley. I'll never think of food the same way after working with him. Wiley is Wiley Dufresne. Before getting the job offer from Noma, Livingston spent some time as the pastry chef chef at Dufresne's WD-50 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where cooking felt a lot like chemistry class at an especially psychedelic college. You ever heard of volatile compounds, Livingston says? At some point, he got a book about volatile compounds from the New York University Department of Food Science, a book that helps explain why, say, honeydew melon and jasmine and cucumber might play well together. That's how I'm able to break down unusual flavor combinations, he says, 
That's kind of how I break down food. It reminds me of Mervold and Magoya's um, modernist bread. Oh, yeah. kind of attitude towards, yeah. you know, it's science. It's, it's a move on. It's quite boisey, though. And, and the Mexico trip that you take us to for the next two food moments is exactly that, isn't yeah. it? It's about how else can you cook? How can you put two flavours together? How can you take ants and make them amazing how can you take bee larva you know yeah. it, it's a it's it, it really is taking the science of food and making it transformative well i think that with noma you know it noma is very different food than wd-50 wd-50 which i ate out before it closed it's not unfortunately no longer with us but you know it's divisive it's very experimental uh combinations that were based on science and um you know the kind of place where a banana was turned into, you know, a balloon. You know what I mean? Those kind. Yeah. Um, Noma is actually all about nature, all about really maximizing what nature gives us already, and maybe you maximize it through fermenting it. Maybe you maximize it through dehydrating it or foraging and picking right at the moment of freshness, um, but not necessarily altering it through chemistry. So in a way, what happened with Malcolm Livingston is he brought that scientific perspective, just knowing how flavors would go well together, and then married that to this nature boy thing that Noma does. Yeah. I'm going to mix up your food moments. You've given me this as your fourth food moment, but actually it's earlier yeah, it in the book. Matter. And it's about mole. And it's his. it shows Rene Redzepi's total... Uh, utter dedication to really understanding what mole is both from a local perspective but also to understanding how good it can be using local products so this is two years after your first yeah. meal at Noma yeah. okay, so you know Red Zeppi pretty well by this Get time you've been yeah. all over the place with him <laughs> and, you, and he invites you to go back to Mexico yeah what happened was they were gearing up for Noma Mexico this big meal they put on for several weeks there and I think Rene still thinks of Noma Mexico as his greatest accomplishment. It was impossible to pull off. Funding dropped out. There were immense and sort of endless obstacles. And yet he somehow managed to pull it off with the team. Um, and this was a pop-up, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, just a- it was a pop-up. They, they, but, they, but pop-up for them, it's not like one night. Like they, they moved the entire Noma team, 90-some people, their children, everything. They live in Mexico for several months. They learn the local culture, the food. I mean, it's not just like, they don't just airdrop in, right? And um, so he also did numerous research trips in advance of that to kind of, you know, better understand these ingredients we're talking about and how to use them. Um, And he was most obsessed with mole. Now, mole, it's very misinterpreted in the United States, I will tell you, like um, by white folks who don't have real experience with it. Um, the main mole you encounter in the New York area, for instance, called mole poblano, which is sometimes made, it's usually made with chocolate and nuts and stuff. It's this velvety, sort of sweet, bitter, beautiful brown sauce. That's, there's a whole reason for that. But a lot of people from the area of Puebla in Mexico moved to New York. So that's why you encounter it here. But in fact, there's an infinitude of moles. There, like Oaxaca has seven mother moles just there, that region. But then there's all these different interpretations of them, and every abuelita, every grandma makes a different version of it. So, and mole itself, 
it's very hard to define. It's a sauce, but it's more than that. It's got a different kind of viscosity than that. And there's moles that can have like 60 ingredients, okay? And so each ingredient is measured out differently for each person's version. <laughs> so so Rene had become obsessed with this, and it's it's almost like becoming obsessed with galaxies. I mean, it's it's endless, right? And he was like, what is it? How do I do it? How do I do it in a way that's respectful to Mexican culture? Not trying to rip it off, not trying to copy it, but do a Noma version of a mole that's a gesture of love, you know, for Mexican culture. He's very serious about that. He didn't want this to be some, you know, colonialist exercise. He wanted this to be a gesture of love for a country he loves and people he loves. Um, Except, can I just say, it was $600 per person uh, using, basically, mole is poor people's food. And he did get hammered for that. He got hammered Um, for that, but he originally wanted to charge like $200, $250. Granted, that's a lot of money, but it's not the same optics as $600. $600 is like, what? You know, I get that. But as you read in the book, (coughs) the reason he had to do that is like days before they made the announcement, the main source of funding dropped out. Somebody basically rescinded a promise of like a million dollars. So they had no choice. He really didn't want yeah. to do that. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's tough. I mean, uh, they had, you know, it was a whole experience. I will say that. I mean, of course, it's numerous dishes, numerous drinks, um, this beautiful location. There was also a whole separate bar menu. Um, and it was the, the Washington Post declared it the meal of the decade. I yeah. do think looking back in food history, people will kind of enshrine Noma Mexico as the most emblematic meal of the decade that just ended and ended suddenly, <laughs> ended yeah. dramatically as we've seen. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I, I this sounds crazy, but I think it was worth it. That's my point. Yeah. Is I actually think it was worth six hundred dollars. Now, and you and you were there <laughs> watching all these elements, and it was yeah. like I mean, we have a program way back when in in the UK called Challenge Annika, which some people will remember. Basically, it is this woman Annika was given the most impossible task in the world to do oh, wow. to pull off in a certain amount of time. This was kind of Challenge Annika Mexico style for Rene de Rezepi, the best chef in the entire world. Everything went wrong, and he still pulled it off. Yeah, that's and he right. It. Yeah, I was, you know, it's funny. I happened to be there when a lot of things went wrong. And this is like reporter's luck, you know. It's it's why I quit the Times. Now, it seems insane to people when I tell them I quit the New York Times. I get that. But I'm in my 50s. I had done deadline journalism for a long time. And I just thought to really tell a story like the people I revere, you know, like Tom Wolfe, like like my predecessors who, who the reasons I got into this business of writing were people like Tom Wolf and, and Hunter Thompson. To really do that, I have to embed. Yeah. I can't take one week off from work to report this. I need to take months off. And they weren't going to let me do that. So as a result, I quit. And then I was just, you know, on call. I was like a doctor. I mean, Renee would text me and say, like, yeah, we're going to Oaxaca. And I was like, okay. Go right here on this laptop. I'd find a cheap flight and I'd fly to Oaxaca or Merida, you know, and and spend a week with them. Um, And it paid off, as you can see, because the thing is, I was there when the funding dropped out and I was there when Renee got sick. 
and I, and I was there when they just they realized like they had these epiphanies like pairing a mole negro a very ashy black funky um mole with this scallop paste they brought from Copenhagen was like you know uh, a transformative taste so I, I was there in the kitchen you know and that was yeah. it, it was like as a reporter you think okay cool yes this was worth it you know yeah. so um yeah can you just read a little yeah. bit of that it's actually on page 156 that I want you to read it's about the moment where the, he finds what he's looking for Red Zeppi kept saying this to the team he wanted to narrow it down. He wanted to eat a tortilla with nothing but salt so that he could follow its melody of flavor without interference. There it was, the chalky whisper of limestone, a residue of nixtamalization. But it makes it more juicy, he observed. He passed around an herb, a leaf. It looked like a fan held by a duchess enduring a heat wave. Smell it, he said, the Oja Santa here. Hernandez was serving a breakfast of beguiling simplicity. Two tortillas with an egg in between them and a floppy green leaf of Oja Santa. She pinched it closed like a dumpling. Do you like it? she asked Red Zeppi. Yes, he said. I'm learning. Hernandez is Juana Amaya Hernandez, who's one of the great chefs in Mexico. She's uh, one of the kind of uh, god godmothers of mole. She she actually the whole day was devoted to giving Renee a lesson in mole and the whole team. Uh, and she made like seven of them or nine of them. Uh, it, it was amazing. But Renee was sick that day, so actually he wasn't really enjoying it. But he he was powering through, you know. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get, go to your last food moment: the Cochinita Pibble Feast. You say in your notes that Red Zeppi still considers this feast that you had with him as one of the three best that he's ever had. Yeah, that's why I picked it. So when I was in Tennessee with Renee, we did a talk together at Blackberry Farm. And I said, what are the three best meals you ever had? And he said, first, a night that he had been like working really, really hard at Noma. And he came home. He took like the day off and he came home and Nadine, his wife, had made dinner for him. Um he does, you know, Nadine's a great chef in her own right. She has a book out called Downtime. Her recipes are amazing. Yeah, so I've interviewed her, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's she's special, you know. So just in that moment, he remembers Nadine's care in, in delivering this to him. And another meal was this um, Macedonian chicken that his father once cooked for him over a roaring fire when he was a kid. Uh, as you know, his, his father is a Muslim immigrant from Macedonia, and this memory had lodged in Renee's soul, sort of. So Nadine dinner, his father's dinner, and this. He said, Jeff, the third, one of the three best meals I ever had was when you and I had Cochinita Pibil together in Yaksuna, this Mayan village in the Yucatan Peninsula. And, um, you know, I'll tell you something funny. This is an interesting little little nugget. I grew up in L.A. I grew up in a city called Pasadena, California. And there's the, one of the first restaurants that we would go to all the time when I was like a teenager was called Merida. And it was a Yucatecan restaurant. 
when you grow up in LA, you know, you don't just go out for Mexican food. You go, are we going to get Oaxacan food or Ensenadan food? <laughs> you like, you go by the regions. So jealous. Yeah, I mean, it was good. Yeah, and also you have the best Thai food. You have the best Chinese food. I mean, those were the staples for my family. You know, so. Um, Cochinita Pibil, I first had as a teenager in Pasadena at this Merida restaurant. I actually knew the dish pretty well from when I was a kid. And, um, but, no, I had never had it this way. So, the men of the village, the, the tasks are very segregated culturally in a lot of these Mexican villages. The women do the tortillas. They're only allowed to touch the masa and the men sort of cook the meat. So the men put this pig in the ground in this, you know, smoking fire pit. Uh, and it's all stuffed with sour orange and covered covered with oranges and covered with these local spices, right? It's like barbecue. And it becomes fall off the bone, tender and fatty and juicy. And then the women uh, nearby are making the tortillas. And then there's a kind of like pickled onion thing that you know not really salsa but like a, a a condiment that you put in there and it's i mean it's everything it's just it's everything it hits every note you know sweet sour spicy pickly chewy fatty it's uh, renee is actually not a huge fetishist of meat i must say as chefs go especially male chefs he doesn't have that stereotypical instinct of like, yeah, I want, you know, a big steak or, but in this. And Nadine, to- Nadine told me that they don't eat it at home. They, they eat it yeah. maybe once or twice a week at most. That's right. That's right. I mean, my son, Toby, who's in the other room, <laughs> and I, he's now 14. He actually went to Copenhagen with me and we went to their house a few times, you know, and, they, and he was like, wow, they don't eat meat. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah they eat a lot of beans and eggs and rice and. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's very health-minded. So it's interesting when he just, like, dives in to a big fatty piece of meat. It's interesting to see him take pleasure in that because yeah. he only does it when it's really special like this. So Yeah, and this is special. Read us a little bit from um, page 186. <laughs> I went a little over the top here. Actually, uh, one critic said I, I, I went over the top a lot in the book. But I was like, well, you I, I know. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> you know, that's what they said about Prince, you know. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, I I don't know. I like that kind of writing. I'll be honest with like, I like kind of high-pitched, intense rock and roll writing. I, I, can't, I can't hide it, so. It's a rock and roll story. You need to tell it in a rock yeah. and roll way. Uh, okay. They're going to open it, Red Zeppi said. He sounded like he was talking about rolling back the stone that blocked the entrance to Christ's tomb. That's over the top. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't far off. The men began to go at the pit with shovels. They removed dirt, blankets, fronds, and sticks. Then carefully they hoisted out a big metal pot that had been at rest on red embers. The men opened the pot an aroma as seductive and complex as that of a cassoulet or a donjon jiguet flooded the air. It was the scent of melted fat and meat that had broken down slowly, tenderly, like a rock split by ice crystals. 
Oh, it smells amazing, Redzepi said. Ask them about the banana leaf. Does it add flavor? It tells you about the banana leaf. It's interesting. That's Renee with ingredients there. That So he, like, most of us were just, like, animals at that point. Like, I was just, like, a beast. I was like, I just want to eat it. <laughs> you know? But he was still asking, wait a second, how did they, you know, what does the banana leaf do? What does the sour orange do? When is it ripe? You know, or do you do you use it when it's not ripe? He was asking all sorts of questions. It, it gets almost a little tedious sometimes because you're like, can we just eat, dude? Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's, what, that's part of his gift. Completely. So let's go back to the beginning and ask that question about the burger. I mean, I won't ever meet, eat that burger, obviously. I'm not going to go. But I really want you to go and eat that burger. Yeah, me too. And come back and tell us <laughs> about it. Because how can it possibly just be a burger? How can that restaurant experience just be about community? It's going to be about something extraordinary even if it's i mean it's not expensive is it it's really i think it's 15 really 15 dollars yeah 15 dollars yeah. what is the essence of what you have discovered about renee redzepi that he's going to put on that burger funk what i know and he kind of told me i guess it's a little off the record but when when he and i chatted before like the la times just did a story about the burger and they talk about what's in it I don't know that they mentioned everything because Renee is not going to tell all the secrets. But all this stuff they do, like fermentation and foraging, those are the two pillars of Noma cooking, okay? They sound cliched after a while. People are like, whatever, fermentation, foraging. There's a reason the restaurant is committed to those endeavors. And the reason is flavor. The reason is going deeper into realms of flavor that you and I have an experience, you know. Um, my guess is they're going to apply those, maybe my educated guess, shall we say, is that they're applying those principles to this burger. They, uh, Renee says in the, in the Los Angeles Times that there's a meat garum mixed in with the meat. Now, meat garum, you know, if you've had like a fish sauce in Asia or colatura in Italy, it's a funky fish sauce. In this case, it's made with meat, you know. So it's like pairing beef with its aged fermented uh, counterpart. And that brings depth charges of flavor to something. I suspect also there's little bits of greens that they foraged. That's not just a showpiece. They don't do that just to, like, look cool. They do it because here's what I sometimes tell people. They're like, how good can Noma be? And I was like, here's the thing. Do you know the color spectrum? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I live on the Hudson. That's the Hudson River right here, right? So I'm looking at green, beautiful red, blue of the water, blue of the sky, color spectrum. What if I were to tell you there's colors out there that your eyes cannot apprehend? You are not seeing the colors somehow. And then if I gave you this little pill, you would suddenly see the colors like the matrix. Well, that's what they're doing at Noma with flavor. That's what they're doing with fermentation and foraging. You know mint, you know basil, you know sage. What if there were things just as delicious as those that you've never tasted? And suddenly when you taste them, you're like, it's not just, I love sage, for instance. It's not just sage, but something as good that's new. So my guess is they're... they're um, kind of layering those things into this burger. So 
you know, meat, cheese, mayo, bun, it's going to be good. Pickled onions, whatever, it's going to be good. But if they bring this fermented thing, it's umami. I, I mean, that word, it's so boring. Now, people use that word all the time. But the umami thing is real. It's, it is a kind of portal of flavor. So that it's like the base in, in a great funk song or something. Or, or like, you know, the walking bass in a jazz tune. It's like, without that, the song is still great, but it doesn't have this bottom. You know, and the funk of umami and fermentation, that's the bottom. That's the, the, it's, it's almost like you're, you know, one of the most amazing things is like Indian cooking when they talk about like you want sour and salty and sweet and uh, herbaceous. Like you want this kind of interweaving of all these flavors and that creates this. Poof. Noma does, Noma's doing the same thing. I mean, the, all the great restaurants, any country are doing that. They understand that balance. You can do that with a sandwich and you see. Wow, it really does work, you know. A little acid, a little bit of funk, just really works. So, that's killing me. I'm gonna be. It's killing me. I can't eat this burger. I gotta <laughs> smuggle myself into Denmark somehow. You've got to. And I, <laughs> I didn't put it past you. You are an adventurer, and you met your match in Red Zone. Yeah. Thank you so hey. much, Jeff. It's a really fabulous read. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It's really fun getting to know you. Thanks a lot. Let's let's hang out sometime, okay? Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And we'll see you next week for more cooking books where food is the story. Oh,